seconds flat. Give me up. Put it down, put it This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's been broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Blake Zero. Oh, my gosh. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Mile 95 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. We're nearing fall marathon season, and this year, more than any before, the calendar is packed with the biggest events in marathoning. Berlin on September 26th, London on October 3rd, Chicago October 10th, Boston the following day, and New York on November 7th. The five most competitive big city mass participation races of 2021, all happening within six weeks. We will, of course, be previewing and recapping those races in coming episodes. But to whet your competitive appetite, this feels like a perfect moment to evaluate how and why we set goals as runners and what a sound goal-setting process can do to make training and racing more fun and effective. So whether you're running one of the world marathon majors, a local turkey trot in a couple months, or still eyeing your next target race, this episode is for you. Over five years, from 2014 to 2018, Peter Bromka lowered his marathon time from 2 hours 47 minutes to 2 hours 23 minutes. He stood tantalizingly close to the sub-219 Olympic trial standard. But cutting another 4 minutes and 28 seconds, or 10 seconds per mile, at that pace seemed daunting. Let me begin our discussion of goal setting with his example and an excerpt from his remarkable 2018 article entitled Burn the Boat. After a marathon PR beyond my wildest dreams, 2.23.27, people had begun to inquire and prod. So, you gonna go for the OTQ? I bristled. I demurred. I shrugged off the reply with a mumble. 21859 is too fast. 518 miles are too fast. Why even try? Bromka asked. He continued, having run relatively close to the trial standard, it's my prerogative to try. All running is relative. The times and splits aren't emotional or physical. They're precise and unrelenting, which is why we love them. In a world of seemingly fluid meaning and truth, the pursuit of endurance and speed, a lifestyle of managing physical fatigue, feels oddly calming. Along with the other men of the Bowerman Track Club elite, I'm committed to the craft, to the journey, and to the audacious dream of the impossible. Then Bromka's goal-setting soliloquy crescendos. This winter at the Cal International Marathon, a train of dreamers will leave the station on 2.18.59 pace, and I'll be on it. Because I can. Even if I probably can't. Everyone I know says I can't. 
The timetables look grim. My competitors will likely scoff at the very notion. And my friends, those who have hung up their flats and see the sport more clearly from outside the haze of ambition, those supporting me steadily can't see their way to betting on my success. It's so unlikely that it's stupid. It's an absurd goal that I'm neither talented enough nor focused enough to achieve. But what if the pursuit of an audacious goal is as worthy a lifestyle as I can imagine? Days structured around family, work, and a hobby difficult enough to break you feels as proper a way to frame life as I can picture. Peter Bromka ultimately fell seconds short of the Olympic trial standard, but his quest and the high bar he set led him to previously unimaginable heights and teach us a great deal about setting our own goals. So what makes for a good goal? I'll borrow from Olympic medalist in New York City and Boston Marathon champ Meb Kaflesky for a straightforward set of criteria. One, it requires you to increase or improve upon what you're currently capable of. Two, it can be quantified or otherwise stated so that you know if you reached it. Three, it requires intermediate steps so that you know how you're progressing toward it. Four, it has a date by which you hope to achieve it. And five, it is personally meaningful to you. I find the first and last of Meb's points most critical to the psychology of goal setting. We must increase or improve our current capabilities. But that's underselling it. As Peter Bromka said, we should chase something audacious. Far too often, we create our own ceiling, setting artificial limits on who or what we can be. But what if? If we don't believe in our own potential for greatness, who will? It starts with you believing and then finding training partners or coaches who believe in you too. I've quoted Lopez Lamong's autobiography, Running For My Life, here before, and he's worth repeating. The thing about dreams is they usually sound crazy to everyone but you. All it takes is one other person to buy into them to keep you going. Moreover, it's essential that you know your why when setting your goals. We've harped on knowing your why many times before. And it's what makes reaching a goal meaningful to you. Note that Bromka wrote, days structured around family, work, and a hobby difficult enough to break you feels as proper a way to frame life as I can picture. He has a clear sense of why. Take time to reflect on why you run. Find stillness. Remove yourself from distraction and create a space to think deeply and intently. Think about the running aspirations that are so bold, they're almost scary, but that you know, for whatever reason, they are worth training for. Consider the commitment necessary for success. This is the starting point for shaping your biggest long-term running goals. Next, Meb's second item. Our goals must be quantifiable. It's not enough to say, I want to be better, or run faster, or run more. 
let's apply tangible data points. How much faster? How many more days of running per week? General goals can be appropriate for the person targeting basic improvements in health. However, greater specificity works best for the most challenging and meaningful goals. That allows us to better visualize the endpoint and create checkpoints along the way, as Meb suggests. Now, a word of caution here in establishing a date for achieving your goals. This requires honest evaluation of your current fitness. Be realistic. Go again to that place of stillness and deep thought. It is not helpful to create a timeline that forces a goal and doesn't mesh with proper training. Hoping to qualify for Boston is an admirable goal. It's one that many distance runners lionize. But if you've never run a race longer than 10K, saying you'll go out and qualify next month without proper training might be a stretch. Don't force in a few runs longer than you've ever gone and get on the line with a Boston or bust mentality. Instead, take stock of your strengths and weaknesses and realize the BQ attempt or whatever your big long-term goal is might be better served on a calendar that looks forward 12, 18, or maybe 24 months. When you decide on one or several appropriate goals, write them down. This is a must. Keep your written goals in a place you frequently see, like on the refrigerator or bathroom mirror, so you have a reminder of the greatness you are working hard and sacrificing for. And then write down your training progress along the way to achieving your goals. In a recent interview on an extra mileist, when asked for a single thing to start anyone on the journey to being a better runner who reaches his or her goals, Elliot Kipchoge said simply keeping a written log of your running and your goals. We know the simple act of writing has powerful implications for our mind-body connections. Plus, it gives us a place to look back at all the work we've done and to monitor our progress. Moreover, if you keep notes about how you feel before, during, and after running, your log can provide clues into what is working or not working in your training and in your daily routine. To quote author James Clear in Atomic Habits, Every action is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. No single instance will transform your beliefs, but as the votes build up, so does the evidence of your new identity. Track each vote in your training log. See what the tally indicates about your progress toward accomplishing your running goals. No single goal or workout session determines success, but the corpus of runs, recovery, nutrition, etc. will suggest if you are on the path toward being a better runner. All right, now that we've sufficiently discussed the philosophy behind setting goals, how do we choose concrete numbers? Most of us are mesmerized by round numbers, the four-minute mile, a sub-three marathon, a 20-minute 5K. A preponderance of evidence shows how powerful round numbers are in our goal-setting psyche. Evaluations of finish time data from major marathons show large spikes in finishers around 10-minute increments at 2 hours, 30 minutes, 3 hours, 
three hours, 30 minutes, four hours, we see large clusters of finishers just below, at, or just above these times. And the same trend holds true at fractions of these big barriers, like three hours, 10 minutes, or three hours, 20 minutes. But what if those number goals aren't readily apparent to us, or we are targeting a race at a new distance? In that case, we have a few resources that maybe will help sharpen your plan. You might consider beginning with a pace calculator or table as a baseline. Acclaimed exercise physiologist Jack Daniels includes a VDOT table in his classic training manual, Daniels Running Formula. Here you find a VDOT value based on a recent race performance and move across the table to find predicted race times at different distances with the corresponding VDOT value. Coach Tom Tenman Schwartz has published an online calculator in which you type in a recent race result, and his equation spits out race predictions as well as offering prescribed workout paces. And Coach Greg McMillan's website offers predictions after incorporating a bit more information about your experience and running style in addition to recent race results. We'll link all of those resources in the show notes. As an aside, these predictors assume you are properly trained at each of the race distances. Translating a 5K time to a marathon time requires optimizing your marathon training, not simply arriving with that level of 5K ability and doing none of the necessary marathon long runs. Also, we recommend avoiding frequently changing your workouts based on race results if you race often. Give yourself a number of weeks before increasing training paces rather than going back to the calculator and recalibrating every time. So this could be particularly true if you are running or coaching a junior high, high school, collegiate, or post-collegiate team that might be racing every weekend. Look back after a set of results, not just one. Another method for determining pacing potential could be looking at the trends of experienced runners. Professor Steven Seiler's case studies show that well-trained athletes run marathons 1.13 times slower than they run 5K races. So, for example, if you run a 5K at 6 minutes per mile, that pace then equates to 360 seconds per mile. This is about an 1837-ish 5K performance. We would then take those 360 seconds per mile, multiply by 1.13, and it equals 407 seconds, or 6 minutes and 47 seconds. That suggests a well-trained marathoner of that ability level might have the potential to run a marathon at 6 minute 47 second per mile pace for just under three hours. I'll link Seiler's data in the show notes as well, so you can look at his equations for the distances in between 5,000 meters and the marathon. In pursuing our goals, it's important to keep the main thing the main thing. Committed runners too often get pulled off track by an obsession with one metric, weekly mileage. Volume is great, and mileage matters. 
we've talked ad nauseum about the aerobic development and related benefits associated with consistent total running volume. But our fixation on hitting a certain weekly mileage total can divert our focus from the bigger long-term goals. The main thing, do I really need to hit 50 miles this week or 100 miles this week or whatever arbitrary number we set? Perhaps you have a cold. We might be better off in a month if we sleep in today and take a rest day rather than forcing another hour of running and prolonging our recovery period. Or we might be better off just doing our normal cool down after a workout rather than adding miles to get us to a total. A more useful metric might be an aggregated total of miles for the year or a monthly average. This is one useful tool on Strava as you have access to an updated four week average of distance, time, and number of runs. If your biggest goal is hitting a weekly mileage total, then by all means, continue the weekly count. Otherwise, it is possibly as much of a distraction as it is a valuable metric. And when a metric becomes an outcome, it ceases to serve as a valuable metric. When approaching any single upcoming race, I like to create several goals, an A and a B goal, or A, B, and C. The A goal is a reach that we hit on the perfect day under perfect conditions. This might be that big, scary, long-term goal, or if it's a checkpoint race within your multi-year plan, it could be the dream scenario under the given circumstances. The B goal is slightly more easily attainable and you could leave race day happy accomplishing it. However, it's important that by the day before the race, you've created a plan and committed to one goal. Consider the totality of circumstances as you go into race day. Is your health at 100%? What does the weather look like? Do you have a good pack to work with or competitors to push you? Pull the trigger on a specific race day goal and stick to it. Don't fear putting your neck on the line. Along with that goal, trust in a well-calculated race plan to help you reach the mark. For shorter races, it can be worth going out on goal pace, even if that's slightly above your current fitness and competitive level, to put yourself in position and see where you stand. Longer races almost always are best executed with an even or negative split pacing plan. For us as distance runners, this often means distances from 10K up. And in upcoming episodes, we'll get into specific race plan ideas for some of the big fall marathons. But in general, running the second half of your marathon near the same pace as the first half or faster than the pace of the first half yields personal bests, world records, and marathon victories. An even or negative split approach often works well for a 5K race also. But at this distance, a more aggressive approach can sometimes be a worthy venture. For example, our intrepid co-host Benji and I planned a 5K duel for Labor Day. For various reasons, <coughs> fear, <coughs> he couldn't make the race. My primary goal for several weeks of prep had been 
beating bed. My summer of hills created great baseline fitness, but I wasn't doing much 5K specific work that suggested an obvious achievable goal time in the absence of our planned competition. So I settled on simply trying to run sub 16 minutes. I went out at 5.05 pace through the first mile, uncertain if I could hold that effort to put myself in position to run below 16 minutes. This was my first 5K in several years. So for a distance much shorter than what I typically race, I knew I had to press from the start, not depend on making up too much time late in the race. Fortunately, I held on for a 15.56 finish, and taking the early risk in that case was worthwhile. And Benji, I know you're listening, my man, so I'll just add that my time would be age-graded to a 15.21 5K for you. So get training, big boy. We'll end my on 95 with two brief final pieces of advice. First, no matter the race distance, weather, or competition, I always encourage recreational runners, even those who are experienced, talented, and competitive, to leave race day satisfied if they reach a new personal best. Maybe that wasn't your A goal for the day. Maybe you dreamed of even more, winning a race perhaps. But a new best is commendable, especially if you put yourself out there and did everything in your power during training and racing. To quote basketball coach John Wooden, success is a peace of mind, which is a direct result of self-satisfaction and knowing you did your best to become the best you are capable of becoming. Second, how you respond to reaching or not reaching a goal says as much about your athletic trajectory as the goal itself. How do you respond to success? Hopefully by setting a new goal, possibly in a different event or even a different discipline, and then starting the process again, and by realizing that the outcome is never the sole reason you set an audacious goal to begin with. It's about the journey, blocking out the noise, the doubts, and pursuing as worthy a lifestyle as you can imagine. That's all for Mile 95. Thank you so much for listening. You can contact the show at secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to seeing you next time on Mile 96 of Seconds Flat.